0: From Campsite Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. For the next few weeks, we'll be trying something a little different. Something tasty. Like, say, that first sip of coffee on an ice-cold winter morning. Or like a hot cup of strong tea in the afternoon, just when you need it the most. It might even be as satisfying as having a large mug of hot chocolate with little marshmallows in it. You see where I'm going with this. The idea started as a joke suggestion from producer Lane. Like, what if we did a whole series on hot beverages? No, but actually, what if? I immediately thought of a story about coffee. And then producer Joe came up with something about hot chocolate. Lane pitched in with a story about tea. Doug, who wrote our theme music, chimed in with an idea for decaf. We tried to make other stories in the meantime, but we kept coming back to hot bevs. So, we did it! Over these next three episodes, you'll hear stories about Nazis, webcams, steamy affairs, polar explorers, monkeys, and more. But first, a quick break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: I want to confess something. When I moved to New York City eight or nine years ago, I was absolutely fascinated by the city's coffee culture. The artisanal coffee shop was ascendant. These were the days when you still heard the term latte liberal, and some people had even begun to understand what a flat white was without any Australians present. American coffee culture was globalizing. I was excited because New York City seemed like it was at the forefront of that shift. On every corner, a place where you could get a cup that tasted like art. What a concept. But one thing I never really saw was decaf. I mean, probably because I wasn't looking especially hard for it. Even so, it felt weird. Turns out, decaf has a strange history. Technically, the first decaffeinated coffee was made by the German chemist Friedlib Ferdinand Runge After a chance meeting with the poet Goethe, involving nightshade extract and the scientist's cat. Actually, it's a great story. So here's a 30-second aside that you can feel free to skip. In addition to being one of the greatest poets to ever live, Goethe was a hobbyist chemist in his free time. He came across Runga's work because Runga was studying under another famous chemist. That guy told Goethe that Runga could dilate a cat's eyes at will, and so naturally, Goethe arranged for a demonstration. The poet was impressed and gave Runga some very precious mocha coffee beans to study and extract. And within a few months, Runga had isolated caffeine. By the way, Runga was so excited that he nearly forgot his cat on the way out of the meeting. Anyway, the year was 1819. Runga didn't commercialize his process. That was another German. His name was Ludwig Roselius, And he developed the first commercial
2: decaf for his family's coffee business. And Ludwig Roselius, in the 1890s, he took over his father's business. This is Professor Jonathan Wiesen. I am a professor of modern European history at the University of Alabama in Birmingham.
0: He's one of the few English-speaking historians who studied Roselius' life. And what a life it was. As the story goes, in 1903, Roselius was a coffee merchant. Sometime that year, one of his shipments was flooded with seawater, and he observed that the resulting coffee tasted a lot like normal coffee, except with almost none of the caffeine content. Rosalius saw a business opportunity.
2: Although, he may have actually had a personal vendetta against caffeine. One of the things that he talks about, which is somewhat made up, I think, is that his father died young from quote-unquote caffeine poisoning. Now, I've never heard such a thing, though, and I hope there's no such thing, because my intake of caffeine, it would not bode well for me. Just as an aside, you can, in
0: fact, overdose on caffeine. But to do it via coffee, you'd have to drink like 30 cups in a very short period of time. Anyway. Rosalius's decaf method isn't used anymore because it involves benzene, a known carcinogen. He calls his decaffeinated invention cafe hog. And it takes off in Germany, despite the nation's robust coffee culture. And that has to do with its very modern marketing, which isn't all stories about dads overdosing on caffeine. Roselius was one of the first to use
2: celebrities to plug his products. So he would get boxers, he would get athletes to pose with coffee hog. He would get companies to put sort of coffee hog porcelain or china uh, with the logo in their uh, meeting rooms. He was savvy,
0: maybe even debonair. In other words, he appealed to many different kinds of people.
2: He was a sort of modern businessman who he claimed when he was marketing to have nothing to do with politics, and he really was the only company that had a market.
0: Roselius expands his decaf empire to France in 1905 or 1906, where he calls it Sanka, caffeine, because French people find hog hard to pronounce. His decaf came to America in the middle of that century under the same name. And it spawned some great ads. Here's one from the cast of I Love Lucy.
2: Instant Sanka, the hearty coffee you can drink as strong as you like. You'll like it, you'll love it. Commercial's over, dear. Oh.
0: Rosalius was doing great. He was a patron of the arts, a famous guy in Bremen, his hometown.
2: He was also somebody who was a deep, deep nationalist. So he was both a marketing man, a business owner, uh, somebody who really had a stake in growing this decaf coffee company in a country where people loved their caffeine. Which, that was tricky. And he was also a patron of the arts in sometimes modern art, but he was also a Nazi. Yup.
0: Café Hogg sponsored Nordic cultural festivals and the like. Roselius's decaf also fit in with Nazi party ideals. They wanted to eliminate caffeine use in their youth members, for example. To them, decaf coffee was synonymous with race and fitness and bodily purity. Which is why Cafe Hogg shows up everywhere from Hitler youth rallies to party meetings. Hogg makes very popular collectible stamps for some reason.
2: And then, after the war, they managed to scrub their reputation. And I think what Cafe Haag was able to do in this case is to say, you know, we didn't employ slave labors or build machines. We didn't build electrotechnical parts for aircrafts for the Luftwaffe. We just made coffee.
0: But that global reputation laundering wouldn't have been possible without America's help, says Wiesen. Hogg's Nazi past was intentionally eclipsed. And they
2: weren't alone. Any company that was around in the 30s was compromised in some regard because it worked for the uh, government and or even employed slave labor or had Nazis at their helms. How do they clean themselves up? Huge PR after the war with the help of the Americans who didn't want to tarnish capitalism because it would play into the hands of the Soviets. So there's a huge push to say corporate leaders, they're not guilty. They're apolitical. These companies have started new. Apolitical. Yeah, for sure. Another
0: thing that made these companies seem apolitical, the Nazis didn't allow them to use party symbols for marketing. They thought it cheapened Nazism or something. Rosalius died in 1943, but you can still buy Sanka on Amazon. Today, it's owned and distributed by Kraft Heinz, though it doesn't appear on their list of U.S. consumer brands. But people still drink decaf, like our friend Professor Wiesen.
2: After 12 p.m., I moved to decaf, which is hard to find. Most of my places, they look at me still funny. For all of the power of Cafe Hog and that brand that sank it, which was everywhere, I don't know a lot of places where you can get a good straight-up brewed decaf. Which is kind of a shame. Maybe
0: decaf would be more popular if it had better marketing? Who knows? After the break, we come back with a different story about caffeine and computers. Our next coffee story made news on ZDTV, the defunct channel that eventually became the other defunct channel, TechTV. Once upon a time, in Cambridge, England, when the World Wide Web was still in its infancy, a few youthful geeks had a problem. And the solution they developed helped give birth to this NetCam technology that we've been showing. The year was 1991, and the place was Cambridge University. Quentin Stafford-Fraser was working in a smallish research group. The problem was coffee. Most of Fraser's colleagues worked in the same room, but a few worked in other parts of the building, and all of them shared a single coffee maker.
1: There were probably, ooh, 10 people in there, I guess, working at big workstations, and humming away in the background with these racks of computers that were all special-purpose computers. The the coffee pot itself sort of sat in the midst of all this, uh, <laughs> rather out of place. It didn't get washed very very regularly because it was actually quite a long walk to get to a basin where you, could, where you could wash it. Everyone had a
0: mug which they'd fill from the pot. But when it ran out, as it inevitably would, someone would have to clean it, brew new coffee, and put the pot back in its spot. Which is a hassle. It's much more optimal to simply fill your mug with the freshly brewed stuff after someone else has gone through the trouble of making it.
1: It really really wasn't very good coffee, and uh, it wasn't very well maintained, but it was just about drinkable if you got it when it was really fresh.
0: Either way, Fraser was in the same room as the coffee pot, which meant he could monitor the pot's coffee levels. He always had fresh coffee, but others who were farther away did not.
1: I felt sorry for some of my, my colleagues who would come downstairs and find that there was just a little puddle in the bottom of the coffee pot that had been sitting there for a long time.
0: As it turns out, Fraser's research group was working on broadcasting multimedia over computer networks. Because back then, it wasn't at all clear that you could do that. People were doing PhDs on video storage, audio synchronization, and video transmission. That sort of thing.
1: And so we had some equipment around that was left over from all of these experiments. And in particular, we had a camera. And a camera that you could connect to a computer was a pretty rare thing in those days, and an expensive thing. But they had
0: one, and it could connect to their computers via their own special capture cards.
1: And so I, just for fun, one afternoon, I took this little camera and I put it in a retort stand or something, and I pointed it at this coffee pot.
0: Frasier and his friend Paul wrote a bit of software to connect the camera to the Cambridge Computer Network. If you ran that program, you'd get a little window in the corner of your screen with the image of the coffee pot. So you could glance
1: down and see whether or not it was worth getting up for more coffee. And it only updated like three times a minute or something like that. Um, But that was fine, right? It was much easier than running down three flights of stairs to see whether there was any coffee. And it also meant you might see it when it was really fresh and so you could get there when the coffee was actually drinkable. And it was probably the most useful thing I actually did while I was working in that group. (laughs) The World Wide Web also came into being that same
0: year. But it wasn't until 1993 that web browsers gained the ability to display images in line with the text. HTML coders? That's the image tag. People started posting logos and university crests and graphs and stuff. And then Fraser came at the feature from a different angle.
1: What would happen if when the browser goes to the web server and says, can I have this image? What would actually happen if it didn't give back the same image every time? We didn't know this, right? Would the browser cache a copy and give you the same thing? Would it know that it had changed on the server? So we thought, Where have we got a source of constantly changing images we can try this with? Aha! The coffee pot camera!
0: Fraser's pals in the research group made their network camera output HTTP, which meant web browsers
1: could find it online. And what that meant was that anybody in the building could then look at our coffee pot without having to run our special software and so on. But as a little side effect, it meant that anybody in the world could see how much coffee there was in our coffee pot and this really caught people's imagination because firstly there wasn't very much to look at on the web in those days you know this was i think before browsers had a bookmarking capabilities
0: it was very early in other words but it meant that the coffee pot camera got a ton of attention from early adopters and the press now if you thought watching paint dry was dull then how about watching a coffee percolator do
2: nothing at all coffee machine has topped a million since it went on the internet 2 years ago
1: hey let's but take a picture of the coffee pot i think more than 2 million people have done it so far and the numbers are still rising
2: and it has a worldwide following with the pot apparently particularly popular in japan uh,
1: and it was only later that i realized that in in one sense not trying to put you know, too much importance on this, but there was something a little bit magical about it because you would go through these pages and pages of static text and you'd follow links and you'd follow links and suddenly you'd get to a page where there was a little window which showed you a bit of the real world somewhere else, a live bit of the real world.
0: It's hard to imagine now, but for a while, this was the only live broadcast that wasn't on TV. It was literally just this pot of coffee. Other cams sprang up eventually, showing things like aquariums and pandas. And yet, in retrospect, the coffee pot camera is a monumental achievement. It democratized broadcasting. Suddenly, if you had the technology, you could show people what you were seeing. In a sense, it's the technology behind things like Twitch and YouTube. Which is why it's funny that Fraser feels a bit guilty about the whole thing.
1: It is true. This was the first webcam. It wasn't the first camera connected to a computer network, but it was the first camera accessed using web protocols. So it was the first webcam. And so I sort of felt a bit guilty that I got the credit and for this thing, which actually they weren't strictly webcams at all. And my mother, I'm sure, is convinced that, you know, every time David Attenborough uses a small camera to to take an image of a gorilla, you know, that it's somehow my invention. It was this idea of using the web to find images at remote places, um, and that's that's what we did first, yes. By, by pure coincidence, we didn't know we were doing it first, otherwise we might have pointed it at something more interesting.
0: But. The internet is something that's easy to take for granted. But back when Fraser was pioneering broadcast technology, it was still a place of wonder. You could be odd just stumbling on a new website. I'm talking via the internet, this is really kind of remarkable, via the internet, to Cambridge, England, to British Columbia and Canada, and here we are in San Francisco. I could see pictures of everyone. We've really come a long way. Isn't this quite amazing, Dr. Stafford-Frazier?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, um, you know. I do remember that one of of my colleagues in the research department who had been on a summer internship at. Stanford or somewhere, um, coming back to the UK, and he still had a login on this remote machine. And I remember him showing me that from the computer on my desk, he could connect to a machine in California. He then typed date, which would print out the date and time. And it was a different time from the one I was in. And it it was really bizarre. This seems so trivial now. But the fact that sitting there, you could be controlling a machine in real time that was thousands of miles away. If you were more adventurous,
0: you might even check on the status of a coffee pot halfway around the world. Or at least you could for the first 10 years after the camera broadcast to the web. The lab was moving, so they decided to end the stream. The last image it broadcast was of a hand switching its server off.
1: In 10 years, it had gone from being something that only you know geeks on the inside would know about, to something that was um, a real novelty, to something that was of historic interest, to you know, <laughs> um, something for which people felt nostalgia. And only in the web could that happen in 10 years. So when we decided to turn it off, there was uproar. And I was quoted on the front page of the London Times and the Washington Post in one week The lab sold the coffee pot to the German newspaper Der Spiegel for $5,000,
0: and then promptly used that money to buy a much better coffee machine. And now, here we are, 19 years after the Cambridge stream ended. The web has been swallowed up by a few centralized platforms, and the whole thing is kept afloat largely by a sea of increasingly invasive ads. It's awash in misinformation and financialization, where everyone seems like they're trying to make a buck off of everyone else. And it
1: used to be different. The web wasn't owned by anybody. It was a free for all. It was an open standard. And so we could take something crazy that we'd already done, which was connecting a camera to the network and make it available through the web in, you know, a small number of hours.
0: Necessity, as they say, is the mother of invention. Fraser's colleagues needed coffee. And so, we got webcams. It's a complicated solution to a pretty simple problem. But who wants to walk down four flights of stairs just to get a cup of bad coffee? Well, I've got my coffee,
1: I've got my keyboard, so let's surf the net.
0: I love coffee, I love tea. Next week on Eclipsed, we've got a story about tea. And chimps. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. hosted by me, Bijan Steven. I also wrote this week's episode. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Research by Morgan Lee Davis. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael, Salty Beans, Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scheyer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. Special thanks to Dr. Quentin Stafford-Fraser and Dr. Jonathan Wieson for spilling the beans about coffee beans. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsedPod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijon Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm BijonCakes.